Well, good evening and welcome once again to Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. This evening we're discussing the conscience captive to the Word of God. This is Daniel de Villiers here in the studio with Dr. Peter Hammond. Welcome, Dr. Peter. Thank you so much, Daniel. Always good to be on Salt and Light. We praise God for Radio Tigerberg. We've been going over 25 years. This year, God willing, August, it'll be 26 years of Salt and Light and Radio Tigerberg. All right, super. Well, and, and today we have a, a special focus, really one which revisits something from 500 years ago now. Tell us a bit about this, this anniversary coming up. What is it that we'll be celebrating and, and what's the importance of that? Well, 2021's got a momentous historic milestone. 500th anniversary of Professor Martin Luther's bold stand in front of the emperor at the Diet of Worms in Germany, where he was summoned to recant. He has put under enormous pressure, a vast array of bishops and archbishops and princes and dukes and archdukes and all the way up there. And there's the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V there. And they're putting all the pressure, basically recant or die. You'll be burned at the stake if you disagree with the church on this one. And the Holy Roman Empire is rock solid behind the Pope. And Martin Luther made this bold, historic, staggering, shocking speech unless I'm convinced by scripture or by clear reasoning that I'm in error. For popes and councils have often erred and contradict themselves. My conscience has kept the word of God. It is dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God, amen. And in this incredibly courageous stand, Martin Luther actually planted the seeds for the foundational principles that have made Western Christian civilization possible. And the most productive and free uh, nations and societies in the history of the world. Because in his short, powerful message is encapsulated the principles of freedom of conscience, which was actually unknown before that time. Because you did what the emperor, the prince, the bishop, the pope, or whatever told you to do. Mm. There, there was no such thing that you could have a different opinion from that of the leadership, which was top-down, hierarchical, pyramid, Babylon, sort of from the apex down. And so freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of opinion, freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom of worship, all these freedoms are encapsulated in this historic speech, which may not sound too radical to us now, but at the time, that was super revolutionary because he was suggesting you could go against what the popes and councils and emperors said. My conscience has kept the word of God. This, this was revolutionary. It wasn't just the foundation for the Protestant churches that have flowed from it since, and the evangelical born-again church since, but actually foundational for any society that chooses to have checks and balances and constitutionalism, that it's not what is said by the leaders, but what is written, especially in the word of God and that our conscience should be captive to that word. Now, what were some of the, the issues really at stake? Uh, we'll, we'll look more at the, what it means, really, the, the faculty of the conscience, because I think that's often a, um, something that, that can seem quite vague in our minds. But if we, we look at the, the law, really, as the governing body, rather than simply the, the king being able to say whatever he would, or, or the pope, tell us a bit about what was behind that reasoning of, of the law versus the king as, as a rule. Right, so there's there's two little Latin words, they're both three letters, it's lex rex. Now, uh, lex means law and rex means king. So the prevailing ethos, the, the consensus worldwide at that time would have been rex lex. The king is the law, the king's word is law. Uh, and there was no question that, and the reformers just inverted it, not rex lex, but Lex Rex. In fact, there's a book written on that by Samuel Rutherford, a foundational major Reformation work. Lex Rex, the law is king. The king is under the law. 
In, in Afrikaans, we might say, the Constitution must be based upon God's law. God's law is the ultimate rock-solid foundation for truth and for authority. So any law not in accordance with God's revealed law as recorded in the Bible is no law at all and it's invalid. And this has been accepted by a great um, legal minds such as Blackshaw in England, and, and they've, they've recognized throughout the years that, yes, God's law is the foundation, as is reflected in the common law of England, the dooms of King Alfred, Magna Carta, which quotes scripture, it's saturated with scripture, and that's a foundational grandfather of all Bill of Rights. So it's a very important point here that, that it's the law that is king, it's God's law, not the opinions or prejudices of some political leader, but what is written, what is revealed, what is God's character and eternal law that is set forth in the Holy Scripture. So for someone like the professor Martin Luther at that time was 37 years old and he's standing before the assembled mind of Europe, there was no question in anyone's mind that he's got to, he's got to bow, he's got to recant, he must do whatever they say because you don't have a choice. And to have made that stand, which meant he is willing to die for it because there was no precedent that anyone could survive uh, re resisting the authority of the Pope because Jan Hus and Savonarola had been burned mm. at the stake just before for making such kinds of stands. And, and Luther didn't think he was coming back from Worms, actually. He really thought he was going to die there. And uh, that's why he told his colleague Melanchthon to stay in Wittenberg because he, he, someone had to continue the work. He was convinced he was going to his death. Mm. So this is unbelievably courageous, probably one of the most courageous things ever made. And the principle is the word of God is a rock-solid foundation for freedom and for justice. And our Lord Jesus said that you either build your house on the rock of God's word or the sand of human effort. And you may say, well, what's the difference? It's actually easier to build on sand. Um, but one day the winds will blow and the rain will fall and the floods will rise and the storm will rage. And at that time, your foundation will make all the difference because only that which is built on the rock of God's word will stand, certainly eternally. But in a time of crisis, you can tell uh, whether you're built on sand, humanism, human effort, human wisdom, or on the rock of God's mm -hmm. word. So I think there's a really important thing at this, particularly at 2021, when so many foundational truths are at stake, even the nature of marriage itself and the mission of the church and what's essential and what isn't, to look back at this milestone history to say, is my conscience captive to the word of God? Now, clarify for us, if you would, while we're looking at the, the historical background of the stand that was taken and which we now celebrate 500 years since that, um, that stand, are we celebrating the, the breaking away then within the church? You, I mean, just for, especially for, for listeners who may think, so what, what is this about? Are we, are we looking to antagonize people who are in leadership or where there's disagreements or are we, are we looking to break away? Or what is it that we celebrate? What is it that we're actually standing mm. on to rejoice and to celebrate in, you know, in, in what took place there 500 years ago? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Professor Martin Luther never planned to split the church. He never planned to start a new denomination or movement or anything like that. He was just earnestly seeking peace with God. He just wanted to know that his sins were forgiven and that he had a right standing before God. And in all of his studies and struggles and self-flagellation and all the different penances and things required by the medieval Catholic church that he was part of, uh, he found no peace with God. He pulled, walked all the way to Rome over the Alps. Uh, he um, he did the pilgrimages. He walked up and down the stairs that Jesus meant to walk on his knees. He was uh, repenting. And he found no peace. 
And it was in his studies of the scriptures that he found peace with God, especially studying the book of Psalms where he saw mm. real worship, Galatians where he saw real faith, and Romans where he saw real salvation. And he said, but I don't know any of this in my life, and I don't see this in the church around me, real worship like in the Psalms, real faith like in Galatians, real salvation as found in the book of Romans. And this is what led him to salvation, to Christ, and he's born again as a result. And so Martin Luther's hope was to reform the church from within by a back-to-the-Bible movement. And so what we are celebrating in this is the rediscovery of Book of Acts, New Testament Bible Christianity, a getting back to the, the church of the apostles, getting back to the church that we read about in the epistles in New Testament, so that what we want to do is look self-critically at ourselves and at our congregation community and say, how close are we to the biblical standard? Mm. This is the standard. This is the gold standard. How have we drifted? And in Martin Luther's case, he said, we are far from biblical faith, biblical worship, and biblical uh, salvation. And so what he was doing was in no way trying to start anything new. All he was trying to do is get back to the Bible. You know, as, as you mentioned, the, the first century church that we're really looking to get back to, I think it's important to remember even the messes that were involved in the first century, the letter to the Corinthians and how many things had gone awry in the Corinthian church or Ephesus where the false doctrine had come in in groves and um, just all of these different waves, even the churches in Revelation that are mentioned, how so many of them had gone off the rail and yet the call within scripture from Paul, from Peter, from the other apostles to return to the truth of God and, and what he had revealed. And even within scripture in the New Testament, we see that call back. But, but if I could step back to, to look then to sort of trace this idea of the conscience that Luther spoke of that was to be captive to the word of God. What did that look like from uh, days past, from before Christ came? What was the role of um, sort of the, the law within a society as to governing that God's community? Because um, we really get the, the idea of the conscience much more clearly artic articulated in the New Testament. What was the function, though, before we see that specifically talked of, of this law and, and the law that, that convicted? How, how did that work then? Mm. Well, Romans 1 says that uh, we are without excuse because um, our conscience does bear testimony to the Creator. In fact, all of creation points to the Creator. And we do see examples of conviction of conscience in the Bible in the Old Testament uh, right there in Genesis. For example, the wicked brothers of Joseph who sold their brother into slavery. Um, they said, uh, Genesis 42, verse 21, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So their conscience was alerting them to their guilt before God. And even Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 27, could say to Moses and Aaron, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. So plainly, uh, not that uh, Pharaoh acted on his conscience adequately, but his conscience was stirred up there. Even someone as far from God and outside of the teaching of the law of God, he could recognize that actually he is wicked when he is being honest. Now, you start to get it more clearly uh, in the time of Ezra, where Ezra is uh, giving his high priestly prayer, Ezra 9 verse 6. I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And we read in the Psalms, David writing prayers like this, 
for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. They're more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. And we see it with Belshazzar, the, the king in Babylon. There, his countenance changed when the handwriting appeared on the wall and many, many tackle passed and you're weighed in the balance and found wanting. And uh, you could read in Daniel 5 or 6 that his thoughts troubled him. His countenance changed. The joints of his hips were loosened. His knees knocked against each other. So he, he was experiencing something of the fear of God and the terror of God uh, without it leading to conversion, though. But, but you could see the conscience was working. And then in Acts 8, now, uh, now uh, actually when we look in the Gospels, we start to see conscience very clearly working because, uh, and being expressly spoken about. When Jesus was confronted by the religious hypocrites bringing the woman caught in adultery, but not the man apparently, and uh, saying that she needs to be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. And Jesus wrote in the sand. We don't know what he wrote, but maybe he just wrote some of the laws uh, in the sand. And then he said, who amongst you is without sin cast the first stone? And then we read in John 8, 9, those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the least. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing in the midst. And she said, where are those who accuse you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we also read in Acts 23, 1, that Paul could say to the council, men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And that's an extraordinary thing to say. So Romans 2, 15 says, who show the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and accusing or else excusing them. And so plainly, in some sense, we have God's law written in our heart and we, we know even without reading Ten Commandments that murder is wrong, lying is wrong, lust is wrong, adultery is wrong, greed is wrong, covetousness. And we, we, we have that. But the law of God makes it clearer to us. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, that we can be justified by faith. But bear in mind, as hard as the Ten Commands are, and when we read it, conviction of sin comes upon us, our Lord Jesus intensified the law of God in the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, it's like committing murder. If you look with lust, it's like committing adultery. And so those who might say, well, you know, technically I've never actually murdered someone. I've never actually committed adultery. And then Jesus comes and says, but in your heart you actually have. Mm. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. You're a liar in the sight of God. And uh, here you can see actually the New Testament teaching on conscience takes it a lot deeper and a lot sharper. So if some people think, you know, Moses was strict, but Jesus, oh, he's really quite soft. Actually, Jesus tougher than Moses. <laughs> and I think that that points to a great aspect of the law of God. Even uh, as it was written, it was never able to cleanse, but it was it was put to draw people to a recognition of that sin. I mean, even if you had one law that was given simply to expose, if you told a lie and someone said, don't tell a lie, you now know that is wrong. I've, I've been told not to do it, but it's wrong. And yet there's all sorts of other sin. That is, there's all sorts of ways that we're not conformed to God that weren't yet addressed, but we know that we have broken God's law or that that law simply by it exposing that weakness, that sin in us. 
And, and similarly, that, that faculty then to be able to discern the conscience, that, that faculty to see what is right or wrong, can guide us as to, is this true, is this not? But it seems in, in the Old Testament, or really before Christ had, had come, that was done primarily by the law that was held out externally to the people. Um, and then we get this, uh, this, this covenant that was reiterated in Jeremiah, where he says, a day is coming that it's not simply if you follow my commandments, if you keep my law, then you will be to me this treasured possession. You'll be to me a royal priesthood and a holy nation. But I will call you as a people. I will be your God. You will be my people. Um, let me just read a, a few verses it, as quoted in Hebrews, but quoting of, of Jeremiah, this passage. He says, it talks about this, this covenant that was reiterated. Um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That was where he gave them the law, where he showed them who he was as revealed in his law. For they did not continue in my covenant, he continues. <clears throat> and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But it's incredible here because he doesn't go on to say, I did away with them, I cast them off. He actually continues in his faithfulness to say, I will still be faithful to my end of the covenant. And here's what he does. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. What an incredible testimony of the faithfulness of God in spite of the faithlessness of the people who'd seen his works for 40 years in the wilderness, time and time again, and yet gone their own way. And so we get this, this writing of the conscience on the heart. Um, maybe you could just share some from the New Testament. And you mentioned a couple passages where in the New Testament, um, the one, for instance, in, in Galatians, where even the Gentiles, it seemed, the law was written on their hearts and they were bearing testimony to the fact that God had, had put his law on their minds. When they were doing that and convicted by that which was in the law without having the law spelled out and written there for them. What are some other places in the New Testament that we see this role of the conscience as being sort of this, this agent, this compass, if you would, of discerning right and wrong? Yes. So in Romans 9 verse 1, we read the Apostle Paul saying, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And in Romans 13 verse 5, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. And 2 Corinthians 1.12, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly mm. towards you. So plainly, there's a great depth of this. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, mm. we persuade men. 
And, and then, we are well known in your consciences. So again, the fear of the Lord and your conscience is very strongly linked. And it seems even there in Corinthians, that's that's both our consciences as well as those people that were living around. And he talks there in Corinthians, I think a third of the New Testament references of the conscience are just in the letters to the Corinthians. And Paul seems to focus a lot, not only on our own conscience, that is bearing the integrity of um, those that, that discernment of right and wrong and keeping that well-tuned, but also where someone else that we're around might seem, this is not right to eat meat, for instance, or to have the, the blood offered, or to have anything to do with, with idols in our midst. We, we can't do this food that's been offered to idols. I can't eat that. That is sin. And Paul says, for the sake of other people's conscience, if they are, if, if as far as they understand that is wrong because of that association in their mind and in, the, in their past, that that sin for the sake of their conscience also, we are to take care in how we act. Um, I wonder, it, it, the, the question comes up, is there a way to, to damage the conscience? That is to, to, to sear it, to, um, Really, to, to ruin that conscience as far as the faculties of discerning. Is there anything that we get as far as ways that that is, you know, that, that is seared? There, there is no doubt about it because 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concern of faith, have suffered shipwreck. Mm -hmm. So we can damage our conscience. In fact, it's said in the scriptures that, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. So it is possible for us to be sincerely wrong. And there are people in the world who do some pretty evil things, probably with a sense of what I've done is commendable and right. And, and plainly they haven't because they're violating God's laws. And yet there are people, you know, just think in the Soviet Union, communist China, North Korea, there's people who probably think, you know, I'm, I'm really doing right because I'm doing what the government orders and, and they might be mm. doing some horrific persecution church and atrocities and yet they feel like they deserve commendation. So we have all experienced where our conscience could be seared, where every temptation you give into makes the next temptation easier to give into and harder to resist. And C.S. Lewis says every temptation we resist makes the next one easier to resist. In many ways, Every decision we make puts us more on the broad road to destruction or on the narrow way to life. So there is the sense of choice. And if I keep ignoring my conscience and suppressing it, I can sear it to such a point that, that I no longer recognize it. And we also know that while the natural person, an unregenerate person before conversion, they have a conscience. And there's basic, you know, I shouldn't have lied. I shouldn't have stolen. I shouldn't. Have. Uh, but when you become a Christian and you experience what Jeremiah uh, the prophet records that God will put a new heart and a new spirit and write his law in our hearts. Well, uh, as a regenerate Christian, we suddenly start to find we are disturbed about things that would never have disturbed us before. And suddenly our conscience gets heightened. And, and obviously a key part here is the scriptures. So the more we expose the scriptures, and the more we understand the law of God and the word of God, then holding to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience, how much more the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself as outspot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Hebrews 9.14 makes it clear that our conscience needs to be cleansed and renewed and revived and restored. And uh, all of our conscience have been damaged just by being in the world and just out of sinful choices we've made and, and maybe the deadening influence of, of the world and, and sin around us so that we can come to, yeah, I'm, I'm not that bad, I'm, I'm better than that. 
that person. And you find the worst example out there in the world and you compare and then, you know, you patch them, you know, I'm not as bad as Stalin or something. Uh, and, uh, but in, in, in all this, we actually see our conscience. So it's awfully dangerous that we could see our conscience. So I'd say in a real sense, you've got to look at it this way. A compass is very helpful for a traveler and for a mountain climber. But a conscience is not good enough without the word of God, just like a compass isn't good enough without the map. And so if you're traveling and using compass, well, that's all very well if you know where you are to start with and if you're following the map. Now, if you have the wrong understanding of where you are in reference to the map or if you don't have a map, your, your compass could lead you astray. Mm -hmm. And in fact, compasses can be interfered with. Compasses can be with magnets and so on. It can actually lead you off the path. So not only must a conscience uh, be uh, cleansed, uh, just like a compass needs to be safe from interference, but we need to understand our directions in terms of the objective reality of the map. And even then, where am I on the map? So if I'm hiking and I've got a compass and I've got a map, and then I come to a cairn, and this cairn, which is this trail marker, pile of rocks, and maybe the soundboard, and if this informs you that I'm at a place different from what I thought, it's objective reality that must determine reality. It's not my feelings. Well, I think I'm actually in political of Gorge, but the sign says I'm in Fountain Ravine. Well, um, the can is objective reality, like the law of God's objective reality. If I find myself at odds with objective reality of the law of God or the word of God or the authorities God's put in my life, now I've got to stop and say, well, maybe my perception is wrong. So just like a compass needs a map and needs to pay attention to the cairns, the objective trail markers. So our conscience needs to be related to the word of God, captive to the word of God in Martin Luther's terms, and recognize the law of God, the cairns, the, the objective trail markers as objective reality. And so to me, that's what we need. It's not my feelings. It's what's the word of God say? And that really does bring us back even to Martin Luther's stand, that his conscience must be captive to the word of God. How many times do we hear people saying, well, I think this is right because God has revealed it to me. I feel in the spirit, I feel that this is the way that I ought to be walking. And yet clearly God's law is spelled out, this is wrong, or this must be done, this is right, and we're ignoring it, we're, we're turning from it. And hence, if we have the clear revelation of scripture, that will not be conflict with what we what what his conscience you know his law written on our hearts is going to say if he is consistent and faithful that must remain the same uh, maybe i'll just briefly go back to one of the the passages you mentioned for those who may not have their their bibles in front of them um, the one quoted of the the purifying of our conscience is actually just taken from after the apostle quotes from Jeremiah about the law being written on our hearts. Then he goes on to talk about these duties that are performed in the tabernacle, the cleansing, the purifying, both to purge the sin through the, the sacrifice, the offering, and to cleanse the worshiper, so put away the filth and to impart this righteousness, impart this purity onto the worshiper through the sprinkling of blood. And he says that these gifts and offerings were unable to do that before, but when Christ come, he said, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, not just a, a bull or a calf, but offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And especially as we approach this Good Friday and Easter season, I think it's so important to remember the work of Christ as central to our even being able to approach God to discern right and wrong well. Um, and we can be in, in, in praise and thankfulness to that work of, of the blood of Christ in doing that. Maybe you could close our time today just with some encouragement for how we might reflect on the stand that was taken by Luther, um, some resources that we can, we can look to um, and as we celebrate this 500 years of the stand here on the conscience. Indeed. Well, we're living in such a time of apostasy and compromise and ignorance and superficiality. It's so important to get back to the Word of God and to be true to our conscience insofar as our conscience is instructed and captured the Word of God. So this is a great time to look in our history, I think, for homeschoolers, for Christian schoolers, uh, to look again at the Reformation. We've got the book, The Greatest Century Reformation. We've got some great films and videos uh, on our ReformationSA.org website. So if you visit ReformationSA.org website, you'll get some great resources to help uh, educate and use uh, this milestone to apply to our time. And yes, as we approach the Holy Week, uh, Easter weekend, and as we look at the Reformation 500, uh, which is going to be the 18th of uh, April, looking back to the stand, uh, may we all work on cleansing our conscience and having our conscience informed and taught and captured the Word of God. So visit www.reformationsa.org and find resources you can use in order to educate people about the Reformation. And let's have a real God Friday mm. and celebrate the resurrection of Christ victorious over death, hell, and the grave and his ascension power, uh, which is coming up, of course, on 13th of May. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for listening to us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Take care and God bless.